It's another Star Trek podcast. There could never be enough of this one's about humanities and also gay stuff. That's all you need to know. It's time to start the show. Engage, Mr. Data. Come on, let's go. Hi, everybody. I'm Dylan. And I'm Kate. And this is episode two of Lavender Alert, the humanities podcast where we talk social sciences using Star Trek episodes as our guide. Uh, This month, uh, well, (laughs) last month, we talked about uh, trans issues and profit and lace. And we spent a lot of time uh, shuffling around talking about this, but uh, we've decided to throw subtlety out the window and tell you off the bat that we both are communists. (laughs) It's Um, bound to happen. Yeah, because it's uh, related to what we want to talk about this week. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about the episode Darmok. Uh, it is the second episode of season five of Next Gen. Uh, it's a classic episode. I think most people really love this episode. This time, we only have like 10 minutes for Dylan to talk about his thesis. So, you know, <laughs> I'll keep it, it down quicker. this time. I'll keep it minimally. Um Anyway, I wanted to bring that up, um, that we're communists, I mean, because yeah. it remind because this episode reminded me of a time that I had a conversation with my mom uh, about identifying as a communist. And me personally, I lean toward the anarchy side of it. Um, and like, what those words mean to me is different than what they mean to somebody who doesn't identify that way because of the way that we have... Uh, demonized those words in propaganda and popular culture, uh, particularly in America, uh, through the Cold War and all of that. Um, and Darmok is an episode all about uh, how we communicate things to each other, how language is constructed through uh, through words and through nonverbal communication as well. Absolutely. And the way that we uh, construct information, the way that we construct language, uh, it colors all of the communications that we have. Exactly, and we'll get around to <laughs> we'll get around to talking about communism later. But <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I just wanted to, you know, that's kind of where we're going to be going. We're going to be talking a lot about political language and how to have a conversation with somebody who has a different root metaphor for the words that you use. You know, they they define the words that you are using differently than you do, and so arguments go in circles and go in circles and go in circles because nobody's talking about the same thing. <laughs> um, so, uh, part one, woo woo. How is meaning constructed? <laughs> um, yes. So we're, uh, Picard talks in the episode after he gets back onto the ship at the end about getting in touch with the root metaphors of humanity of like the Homerian, uh, epics, you know, the Iliad, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting because I think all language is built on past usage of of the same word. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, you, you see obvious influences of the Latin language and some of those other languages around there. And that's the case pretty much anywhere. You, you see language evolve and change, um, you know, even modern you know we have words that have come into being now that didn't exist a while ago and it's all because of the way those new words just sprang up out of existing concepts 
Yeah. And even you look at a word like literally, which is... Yeah. Well, it means like in reference to a, a printed, like to the print, the original printed text, because it comes from that kind of yeah um, usage. But it now means both metaphorical and an actual thing that happened and has kind of been like completely (laughs) it's been bastardized from its usage and sort of literary terminology and the way that you speak about referencing a text you know it doesn't mean that anymore to anybody except my mother (laughs) (laughs) and in talking about referencing text also it used to be that the only people who really talked about things being canon was catholics uh, and now all kinds of people on <laughs> Tumblr.com will not shut up about canon and non-canon. You know, uh, that's a word that still means the same thing, kind of, but the context has completely shifted. Yeah, it's been adopted by fan culture. And it's, yeah. and, it's, and it's opposite fanon exists now, where it's like widely accepted things in the community that aren't actually there in the original text. Exactly. And either, this, that's a new word, fanon, that didn't exist before, but does yeah, now yeah, yeah. based on canon exactly and i think evolution yeah and god we <laughs> promised we were going to try to say yeah less in this episode but i don't know if it's that's not going to happen, happen. <laughs> i can't help it that we're both so smart and right all the time yeah i was trying to trying <laughs> i did it again i was trying to tease him earlier <laughs> by saying yeah a bunch before we started he didn't even notice it's just, <laughs> it's just that natural well it's part it's part of our language it is. It's part, it is part of our language. It's a filler word. Uh, it's part of active listening, and it's important. Exactly. I actively didn't say yeah there. Um, <laughs> and even, like, particularly with the rapid development of technology and stuff, uh, there's a lot of meaning that can be put into, like, images and stuff. We're going to talk about memes later. But even just in mm. terms of, like, language, certain emojis mean certain things to when I say them to some people versus when I send them to other people, you know? Oh yeah. And if you look at, uh, I mean the, the sort of symbol for phone now, for example, that doesn't look anything like the phones we use now, but you show someone and they say, Oh yeah, that's a phone. And for someone who is new to, you know, this kind of environment and the, the way that we communicate our technology, it would be weird that we have a symbol for phone that looks nothing like a phone. My family does still have a rotary phone, actually. <laughs> well, okay, hipster. And and going back to the, like, an emoji that I send you is different than when I send it to <laughs> another friend of mine, because we, there's, there's a, there's a history to that. I think Absolutely. that a lot of different communities have adapted language to communicate the meaning that they need, um, but it makes it illegible to an outside observer because, uh, because that metaphor is only a root metaphor in that one community and has ceased or, and, and was never constructed out, outside of there. Yeah. Um, yeah. My mom yeah. sends me winky faces a lot in her text and she just oh doesn't understand. Yeah. She sent me that one smirk once and I just had to tell her like, don't, I'm not going to explain why, but don't do that again. Please don't send that. <laughs> uh, they mean, they mean things to people that they don't mean to other people. It's, it's weird yeah. how language and I think- works. Yeah, and now I mean that's the whole point of the episode is that metaphors are an essential tool to um, the Tamarians in that it is the entirety of their communication. But the point of the episode was Picard figuring out that oh, 
all language is that, you know, all of it is mm-hmm. built on this sort of understanding of uh, previous like, oh. Yeah, you know, the understanding of these cohesive grammar structures that um, that mean something, but then also each word is built on the way it has been used previously. Um, and the ways in which we can parse down these complicated concepts into Darmok and Gelada Tanagra, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Romeo and Juliet on the balcony. <laughs> right, and Romeo and Juliet is a kind of a good segue to talk about art and poetry being kind of a metaphor. Um, you see these, these plays, I mean, things like Romeo and Juliet as that example that was written, you know, a long time ago and it's still being taught and performed and still being thought of as, as a really interesting and evocative work of art because it's a metaphor. Everyone can kind of relate to these, these, you know, these plays or to artwork that you know, speaks to us uh, on a metaphorical level. And part of that also, I think, is you bring the meaning to the art, right? Like, mm-hmm. you have to have enough background in whatever the meaning you're going to get out of it is to have created that meaning, right? Like, you can't just look at something completely made by a completely different community that you have no cultural context for and hope to, like, grasp what they're trying to say to you. There's a lot of times that not having the context of the art kind of just makes it meaningless or you get the completely different meaning than what was intended uh, because you don't have the context that it was created for. And you made the interesting point that this whole this whole episode is art as metaphor to talk about art as metaphor. Yeah. That's fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you are, you know, Rick Berman and you don't know what you're talking about, you don't understand the context of, of this, then it doesn't work for you as that metaphor. And it's just meaningless garbage. But when you we read on the wiki right before we started recording that Rick Berman didn't want to do this episode. And I think that's very funny. Yeah. Is that kind of the mark of a good episode? Absolutely. This is a firmly anti-Rick Berman podcast. <laughs> uh... So the reason I think it's important to kind of talk about this stuff and about language uh, as always being metaphor and always being uh, necessary to be contextualized by the space around it is, as I said earlier, I see a lot of political conversations that don't seem to go anywhere because nobody is using words the same way. There was a post I saw on Tumblr um, that was talking about uh, work for food. Um, and I just, it was so frustrating reading through it because I could just tell that they were not using the word work to mean the same thing as the person that they were arguing with. Um, and I think that's a, like a really big, that's a really big one, you know, particularly, um, in communist, uh, conversations about labor, um, which by the way, as we record Mm -hmm. this, it is international workers day. So happy late international workers day, everybody. That's the real labor day, you know, uh, read about your history. (laughs) Uh, it's labor day for a reason. And it's because they killed a bunch of anarchists in a fake trial. Anyway, (laughs) um, their deaths were real. The trial was anyway. Yeah. There's videos about it. Go research it. It's really depressing, but, uh, interesting. (laughs) 
Sorry, that, that sidebar aside. Um, no, yeah, it's important sidebar. That's an example you know, we, of, of context that you kind of need when you're talking about communism and anarchism and this sort of discussion, this politics, is that there are these real things that happen. These workers who fought for your rights, you know, uh, without those workers, without the knowledge of that context, then a lot of this kind of just seems silly. You know, a lot of people yeah. think that unions don't really do anything. It's just a bunch of people trying to cause trouble or you know trying to get yeah. your dues but there's a lot more context to it than a lot of people are aware of yeah those anarchists were killed specifically agitating for an eight-hour workday, which is something we take very much for granted these days and are losing oh, yeah. as we continue to have no real coherent labor <laughs> movement uh and cede our rights to to the bourgeoisie, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like we're having this conversation without having properly defined our terms. Um, just like <laughs> last episode, uh, we're going to have a glossary uh, in our show notes. So um, if you want to read up more on this stuff, uh, we're going to be sure to try to explain these concepts uh, in, in the way that they're understood by the people who live them rather than through sort of these sort of... Um, you know, the propaganda version of communism, the propaganda version yeah. of anarchism. Um, mean very of... different things than what, what we actually believe in. Absolutely. We're definitely going to have oh. uh, public and uh, private personal property on there, those three different things. that. Oh, yeah. I think private property is a big one. Absolutely. Because every, every time people want to argue with communists about property, uh, you know, it's the old, the communists are going to steal your toothbrush thing. You know, exactly. like, oh, I want to own my toothbrush. And it's like, you don't understand what private property means when we use that term. Yeah, exactly. And that toothbrush sort of becomes an evocative metaphor that people have where, I mean, you know, you talk to any communist about, you mentioned, you know, sharing toothbrushes and everyone goes like, yeah, oh, it's that again. But people, you know, uh, you see a lot of political cartoons. <laughs> With toothbrushes, because it's just, it's a very evocative metaphor. Yeah, because it's something like very, very intimate and something that you wouldn't want to share, you know, for health reasons, for whatever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of good reasons to not share your toothbrush. Please don't share your toothbrush. Incredibly. That's not what communists want. <laughs> um, our issue with private property is based in the ownership of, well, and here's a meme from our side, I suppose, or a, or a metaphor, you know, the means of production. <clears throat> mm -hmm. What yeah. property is, is the capacity to uh, own the labor power of other people and the machines that build it, you know, so that only you can produce it. Right. The question is, who is it private for? Because it's not private for people. It's private for companies. It's private for the people who own it. But it's different than personal property. Yes. That's, that's, a, that's the big distinction that we try to make when having these conversations outside of our circles. Personal property, private property, two very separate things. Your toothbrush is personal property and you can have it. I do not want to brush my teeth with your toothbrush. <laughs> not even mine. Aw, thought we were close. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love you very much, babe. I'm not gonna brush my teeth with your toothbrush. That's probably fair. <laughs> um, and I think that's, you know, that is how propaganda has altered the way that we are able to have these conversations. 
as you say, a lot of people who talk about the, you know, the communists are going to steal our toothbrushes, a lot of them understand that communists don't care about toothbrushes. But if, you know, they were to say that communists are going to try to, you know, distribute uh, the private property to the people so that no one has to go without food, that's a lot less scary. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's because... The propaganda, particularly of the Cold War era, you know, very smartly constructed an image of what these words mean, constructed a new root metaphor for America about what it means to be a communist or an anarchist or whatever. Um, because that is how you um, manipulate public perception uh, through propaganda, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's about redefining terms in a way that makes it easier to uh, dehumanize and decontextualize your enemy. And when they control, you know, where the, the um, context for people's like understanding of these concepts comes from, then they can make people come to certain, you know, uh, certain conclusions about things uh, on their own, you know, in quotes, but, because of this yeah. propaganda they control what base you're working off of yeah the way we learn history and politics in you know in the school system primes us to understand what is good and what is bad when we exit that school system and head into the world in a way that is biased in favor of the mechanisms that generated that experience yeah. <laughs> the experience of schooling and learning you know um, cause I, I got good grades, but I, okay, nerd, but that's because I was good, but that's because I was good at processing information the way they, the way that is beneficial to the system. You know, it took me a yeah. really long time to sit down and think about how the world was actually functioning mm -hmm. because I had bought so much into I'm going to learn these facts and I'm going to regurgitate them and I'm going to get a good grade and then I'm going to go to school and then I'm going to get a good job. And then that's how life works. You know, that is what you should aspire to in your life. Like that yeah. is the path that you take. And it wasn't until like, I mean, part of this is because I went to a fine arts school. So I didn't like <laughs> take more classes in college. Um, I don't really know what a, you know, what a liberal arts school or whatever would teach you. But like in grad school, I really had to sit down and like think about it. And it was really hard for me um, to like unlearn a lot of this stuff and like try to actually come to terms with the tangible reality of existing under the system and what it means for what it means for us as as workers and as people um, alienated from the world around us. Yeah. And I was uh, not good at what school wanted me to do. And uh, it still took me a little while to sort of understand that what, you know, what school wanted me to do, what that system wanted me to exist in, the, you know, you work until you die and squeeze all the labor out of you that they can. Um, I, I, that wasn't something I was capable of doing because I have problems disorder. <laughs> and yeah. it still took me a sort of a little while realizing like, oh, they're just trying to kind of juice me out here. They're they don't really give a shit about my personal well-being or what I'm capable of providing. 
all they really want is to get as much, you know, work out of me as they can. Yeah, well, because even a failed capacity to uh, provide labor in the market the way that you want or the way that the system wants you to is still contextualized as you are a failure because you cannot do this yeah rather than an understanding that like there are different forms of intelligence and different forms of people's capability to do things and our personal value that isn't necessarily based on our capacity to generate wealth for people who own the means you know like we are reduced to that. One of the things that really got me um, and sort of helped me like realize that the issue wasn't, you know, that, that the, the problem wasn't, you know, that I'm a failure because I'm incapable of producing the level of labor that my peers are, is that expression, there's no such thing as a lazy man, um, or there's no such thing mm-hmm. as a lazy man. I forget the exact uh, phrasing of it. I think that's but, right there really isn't there aren't really people who just simply don't want to provide it's just that the the way that the system tries to force people to do specific things and tries to uh, make people give up their lives for you know the dollar uh, that's different than people working together people being a community uh, you know it's it's different than what communism aims to do entirely yeah, I hope that this uh, that this lockdown as a result of the virus has been illuminating to people um, in terms of the, well, the the human drive to do things isn't based on us laboring for the bourgeoisie. You know what I mean? Like. It's not a being locked up in our houses are making us is making us fucking crazy. (laughs) Like it's a terrible way to live. Um, And I really hope that a lot of people are thinking about that and thinking about the value of, you know, what we do outside of the things we do to make money. Absolutely. Uh, Our desire to generate art, you know, uh, the value of traditionally devalued jobs that are now essential or are missing uh, in terms of people who like are used to having someone look after their kids, you know, or like teachers, although teachers still working, but like that classroom experience is gone. And I, and I really, I hope that people are thinking about it, you know, yeah, um, and that this alters our relationship with work, but I don't know if it will. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. And also, I hope it, uh, another, I think, really valid point, while we're on the topic of people being unable to be productive in the ways that capitalism wants them to be, you know, I've seen a lot of disabled, like physically disabled people in particular talking about um, how ironic it is that all these people who have been like, oh, it's you're so lucky that you just get to sit in your house all day are now like, ah, quarantine, <laughs> ah, you know, like, yeah. I hope that, I hope, I hope so much that we become more introspective as a society about um, the inaccessibility of culture and of uh, our attitudes towards uh, working and being a valuable person. 
because we're all valuable. That's that's what really the heart, I think, of communist ideology is, is that you're not, your value is not based in what you can generate. Your value is in just being a person with an, with like, an opi with, with opinions and a life, you know, like you're valuable on your own. You don't need to make anything to be important. <laughs> Human beings have inherent worth regardless of their productivity. We've wandered off a little bit, but I think this was a good conversation. <laughs> we, we kind of, yeah, in, in the beginning, we were a little bit warning y'all that we were going to talk about <laughs> politics and that inevitably yeah, yeah, yeah. derailing. Um, anyways. <laughs> but Star um, Trek but is political. That's, I mean, everything's, I mean, everything's political. political, but Star Trek in particular, Star Trek wants to it be political. Provide, it yeah, it political. prides itself on being political, even when it's even often, when it's bad at it. yeah, <laughs> um, a, a lot of times it's trying to say something while trying to not say very much at all because, well, because yeah. it's more productive to give the appearance of, you know, political discourse, but if you actually say something definitive, then people are going to get angry. Yeah. I mean, so, that's um, the long yeah. and the short of it. Yeah. So the, the motive for profit, what the logical thing to do under capitalism is to stir up the appearance of political discourse. We're not actually making any kind of statement or actual have, you know, have any actual discourse. Because uh, that's that's really a, a nuclear and Deep Space Nine did a pretty good job of actually being political in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, and it was also the least popular when it was on. So hmm. exactly. Well, and Enterprise might have been less popular. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's because <laughs> I'm it was sorry, Enterprise. It was just that's because it was bad. too horny. There's a point of horny, it was too horny and also horny. also season three was an awful uh, justification for uh, post nine eleven invasion of Iraq. Oh, but yeah. anyway. We, but yeah, we, but, we don't have to talk about season three of Enterprise. Um, this is sort of an example of uh, when you look at something like Deep Space Nine that was a little bit less concerned with popularity and ratings, and you know, because people didn't really pay much attention to it up up top, the same way that they do with some of the other Star Trek shows. They weren't forced to do something that was quote unquote productive. Instead, they actually made something that's interesting and that we can talk about more intellectually and this is an episode that we can kind of do that with partly because yeah. people didn't like it as much but also really liked it because it does actually say something uh, yeah you know um anyway trying to wrap back Sorry. Around to yeah, the point here no 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 no. it's fine um this is why uh, this talk about propaganda and cultural construction of of words like communist is why i brought up up top that this reminded me of that conversation I had with my mom about why do you identify as communist if it has all of this like baggage in in American society and anarchist as well. And I think that's because putting it out there requires people, at least people who are willing to think about things, to engage with you on the topic that you would like to talk about, you know? Like if I say I'm a communist and someone has all these preconceived notions, but they, but they're willing to talk to me, they will ask me why they will ask me, they will say, but, but why would you believe this? And you, it opens up these windows to have a conversation about the reality of communist belief and, you know, uh, 
and why it's not what people think it is. And I think that's a very, very important way to build solidarity across uh, a political line like that. Yeah, definitely. But also, it's <laughs> it can be used for evil, you know? Fascists mm -hmm. definitely have a really... Uh, they are very good at propaganda and dog whistling. Um. Yeah, partly because they have to be a little bit, um, not that the, the you know, world at large has been really that against fascism, sadly. The world likes to say that it is, um, and, and that kind of forces them to keep their heads down. And then also, you know, um, you have uh, like uh, Antifa, you know, who would just lay a fascist out. So uh, they try to keep their heads down and spread their, their stuff through memes and through images, through hidden things like numbers uh, that other fascists can see and understand and relate to, but will go over the heads. And, and on that point, 14, if you see the numbers 14 or 88, that's a Nazi. Yeah, especially together. Uh, yes. There are a few other uh dog whistles uh uh some of them are things you know like memes like obviously uh that frog is one of them um oh, poor pepe poor, poor <laughs> he pepe he didn't deserve all that he really didn't um but uh numbers have i think for a long time been been part of the the fascist dog whistle like lexicon um we can yeah. see about uh listing some of the the bigger ones so people can know to look out for them yeah there might be a there might be a someone who's already conglomerated them somewhere, and we'll try. There to definitely link to it. I'm is. Sure there we is. can link to yeah. it. We we would want to have it separate from the glossary because I don't I don't want people yeah, no, to just have to see them. But they're important to to know so that you can recognize them. Um, there's a lot of things, even and not just fascists. Like lots of sub lots of bigoted subgroups will have their like words that they use. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. And yeah, like if we're throwing back to last episode, TERFs have tons of, th I mean, TERFs are very Oh my God. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> we don't need to, uh, anyway, um, that'll be a whole, whole rant if we start talking about that. Yeah. But like, it, there are patterns in discourse that are these mm -hmm. root metaphors for them that pass that message on to other people in their community and mm -hmm. try to subtly influence the way that people who aren't quite there, but who are vulnerable to believing we'll start to think about things. Um, one, of the, one of those that uh, I think people don't know too much about, they don't recognize too often, but blood libel is a fairly common uh, mm -hmm. sort of conspiracy theory that fascists, um, anti-Semitic anti uh, people try to keep like spreading and keep talking about. Uh, and you see it sometimes like... Uh, tabloid stories or something and people were there was a, a quote news story a little while ago that people were spreading around on tumblr about you know the rich uh using poor people's blood to you know for health reasons or something like that i forget what it was but it wasn't a real news story and it was very clearly just blood libel um but people didn't recognize that and so they spread it and so fascists saw it and obviously you know shared it and people who weren't fascists but weren't aware of the the blood libel conspiracy uh being an anti-semitic one they shared it too and so this this very anti-semitic uh concept this idea 
spread around further than it should have. And you yeah, see I would say be very wary of conspiracy culture at large. Like yes. conspiracies can be fun, but a lot of them rest on anti-Semitism, even ones you wouldn't think do, like Absolutely. flat eartherism. Yeah. Somehow even flat earthers that's based on anti-Semitism. Like Oh yeah. You really very. have to you really have to be careful around conspiracy shit because it's all it's always the protocols of the elder Zion. Yeah. Every time. Every Pretty time. much all boils down to that. Uh anything that references the elites, uh, that's a that's a big dog whistle. Um, yeah. I, I have yet to see a single conspiracy theory that does not at some point just boil down to Jewish people did it. Um, yeah so, and i think that's a, yeah. a very frustrating point the thing about elites you know because mm-hmm. there is well there's a i want to be very i want to be very careful about how i word this because well, there's I a, a really don't want to be misunderstood here in capitalism yes. and that is yes. very different than the the anti-semitic concept of you know the elites shadowing shadowy elites moving society the, the ruling class is, you know, the 1%, and there are people with all of the money and the resources and the, the means of production and shit, and they're the ones who, you know, uh, Disney, Walmart, Amazon, these are people who, you know, they influence the government through lobbying and shit like that. Yeah, um, but that's why I think it's very important to examine the root metaphor of the thing that you are engaging with because absolutely there is like some things are very close to each other that mean the complete opposite from each other you know yeah and there are definitely um some people who claim to be communists but their idea of the ruling class is the elites they're talking about and it just boils down to more anti-semitism but they call themselves socialists or communists or anarchists and you know, they get to uh, stay in the community and they just communicate through dog whistles. And if you don't pick up on those dog whistles, you can have a fascist, you can have an anti-Semite, you can, you know, in your community. And it's very important yeah. to be aware of these things and stay on them. Um, yeah, for sure. And it's a lot of work, definitely, to like try to analyze through, but it's like super, super important. And I think that's mm-hmm. like the biggest message that we want to convey with this episode is that you should learn um you should learn the root metaphors for what you want to talk about and what might be masquerading as something that you want to talk about another one that's big currently because of this whole virus thing as i've seen eco-fascists mm. gain a lot of ground because um there is less air pollution right now because nobody's driving you know like but it's not because humans are the problem and we're overpopulating and we're killing the earth. Right. The yeah. problem is that the virus has shut down the capitalist methods of production and consumption in a, such a way that things have slowed down. You know, it, it looks mm-hmm. better. But it's because capitalism's not working, not because people aren't working. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I've had people that I like and trust very much say that kind of stuff. And I'm like, mm. you can't say this. I mean, you can, but I'm going to call you out for it because that is incredibly dangerous. <laughs> right. And that's what you need to do is call people out for it. But like, and you see, you know, uh, people, pe- I've seen people sharing posts, pictures of like 
deer and other animals like you know venturing out into the streets or whatever because there's no cars but really it's because they became reliant on you know people leaving litter people leaving food for animals and when people yeah, are we're, no we're a part of that. the environment exactly and when part we of the are removed from that environment <laughs> the environment has changed in such a way that now they aren't we're we are missing from it and they don't they have shifted their ways of life to match ours, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Exactly. And that's why you're seeing the change in, in the wildlife, not because they're, quote, healing, but because part of the ecosystem, us, is not there at the moment. Uh, that isn't yeah. necessarily a healthy or unhealthy shift for them. It's just... Yeah, it's different. just the way that things are now, yeah. <laughs> um. And I mean, I think we do need to examine our relationship with the, we need to examine ourselves as a subject from within the environment. I think there's a real tendency, even in people who consider themselves environmentalists to be like, oh, it's us. And then it's the environment and we are hurting it rather than trying to understand ourselves as like a generative part of (laughs) how the earth functions, because we are, we're on the earth. We are part of the environment. We have just built new biomes within that environment, building cities and stuff, you know? Absolutely. But we should be trying to adapt our biomes to be healthier with the rest of the environment rather than being like, oh, we should, you know, all be anprims and go live in the woods. Oh, like- God. <laughs> Which is talking about all the different groups, aren't we? Yes. I promise that these are all in the glossary if you don't know what we're saying. Yes. Well, that means we're going to have to define anprims. <sighs> <laughs> try to do it as seriously as i can (laughs) (laughs) i'd apologize to any anprims listening but also uh baby why are you listening to a podcast if you're an anprim exactly that's technology you're not allowed to do that yeah go throw (laughs) your your laptop in a ditch and shit in the woods (laughs) see that would be mean but there aren't any primmies listening it's like the amish it's free game I think the Amish can defend themselves. They got rakes, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I love that post. Anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. Back on topic. Um, yeah. Um, we wanted to wrap this up with uh, a conversation about what did, what brought Picard and, um, God damn it, what's the captain's name? Dathan. What, what did break across this language barrier? Like, how did they build communication um and i think it's really there's something to be gained from the fact that it was uh um that it was dathan offering to help him um yeah and it was also the common threat the the fact that they were facing something that they both understood as a problem uh, and from that context that they shared they were able to yeah, the first Build thing that Picard is, the first thing that Picard is able to understand was Temba, his arms wide, as Dathan offers him the fire. Um, and I, again, they we're probably reading a lot into these things that isn't intended, but also death of the author, baby. I don't care. <laughs> I think that if we're talking about this in terms of political speech and in terms of trying to reach out to each other across political lines. I think that's a really beautiful metaphor for uh, an attempt to build class consciousness and class solidarity. That the things that are going to get through 
are going to be reaching out to each other and offering what is needed, uh, you know, because we all struggle and we all like need things and fighting with each other in circles. Uh, <laughs> even if you're trying to convince them to be what you think is the right way to be, you know, like I definitely have conversations where I'm like, I would like to convince you that the way you understand politics is harmful and there is another way that is better. I'm not going to get there by, by shouting <laughs> at people that they're wrong or like, you know, like telling them that they're evil. Like, right. Like I'm, I mean, for one thing, we disagree about some things. Uh, I'm not an anarchist and you are, but we understand that the way forward isn't to try to, you know, yell at each other and try to correct each other and try to, you know, tear each other down for believing different things about, you know, how to bring about communism, but to work towards a common goal. And I'm not even sure that we, because I don't think of the way that I formulate my ideology is how do I think is the best way for society to function, not even how to bring about it. We have different ways of, of viewing, you know, the revolution and, and how to, you know, how we can best have society but you know what I mean uh, we have slight disagreements I think I'm more focused on what do I think it should look like when things are over and yeah. I think that one of my big blind spots is how will we get there because that's just not something that I have spent as much time thinking on and mm -hmm. and, I th and I'm still very open to anyone from any part of the you know well, okay, not any part, because I'm not going <laughs> to listen to an Anprim, but like, I, I, think, I think that Marxists and Marxist-Leninists have really, really good points that need to be considered. Like, I don't think that fighting with Marxist-Leninists, because I think that anarchism is better, is a productive way to build anything. Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, for, for me, it's, um, a lot of that sort of is about, like, I, I think that transition to socialism and then to communism um, if that's a forward and that's more what I'm focused on than what it'll look when we get there because until we get there you know the, the journey is going to be the hard part theoretically but it's still important yeah. to look forward and be like well wh what do we actually want to work towards um, yeah I think there's I think there's a, a role for both of them and right exactly you know, left unity left unity is my left point. Unity. left unity yes, yes. I mean like there is a historical precedent for like uh, reasons that I think the left doesn't trust itself, but mm. I think that it's, it's in bad faith to pretend like everybody who doesn't agree exactly with you would act the same way. You know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah. I think that just like Picard gets so fixated on like himself and what is happening <laughs> with him, you know, like, yeah his failure to make fire, like all of these things, like he gets very fixated on the fact that he can't communicate and the things that have happened in the past, rather than like, this guy is reaching out to me. And I think it's really beautiful that it's like, take, like, you need the fire. Here is the fire. Like right. Temba, his arms wide. <laughs> and he, that is what brings them together. You know? Yeah. He, he sees the knives and not the knives and it, you know, anticipates that this is a, some kind of, to the death and that becomes his whole context for the, the rest of the encounter is he's 
he thinks that it's a competition of some kind. He thinks that it's some sort of, you know, that they're trying to torment him somehow. And that's why they've teleported him. You know, he thinks that the guy is and upset he's going to have to win. Him. He's going to have to win, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And he's, he's not viewing it as something they have to work together on. Uh, and the body yeah, language wants... is... Sorry. No, sorry. No, sorry. The, the body language is what gets through to him uh, eventually. The actions... Uh, offering the fire and solidarity, as you said, and uh, in working together against the, the common enemy, that's what helps him. It's not the language, it's the deeds, and it's you know, how you act towards one another, not just what you say and the language you use. Yeah, uh, uh, and I think it's really cool. It's another salient metaphor that we can... <laughs> it's another metaphor we can make out of this episode is that uh, is that the Talarians know that the way to bring people together is to fight the common enemy, like, you know, yeah, to identify and uh, and deal with the problem that they are both facing, which is the weird electricity monster. But, mm. you know, in our case... <laughs> <laughs> right. It's class solidarity. You it's know? Amazon. It's, it's a recognition. Yeah, you know, it's a recognition that there is... Uh, a system in place that is trying to keep us apart from each other because our power is helping each other. <laughs> our exactly. power is in that we care about each other because that that is the human condition. And I think it's really interesting to me that at the end of the episode, they didn't recalibrate the translator so that they could talk seamlessly. They just learned how to communicate with each other. They began to speak in metaphor as well. and that's the basis for their communication. It wasn't something where they had to, you know, make the aliens um, understand them. It was a case of they had to figure out, you know, how to, to have that solidarity. Um, yeah. And they invent a new, a new one together. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Picard and Dathan at uh, El Adrel. Right. And similarly, sort of linking back to, to real world, we have those those times too. I mean, like today, May first. That's uh, a uh, an event that we can call back on and we can reference. Um, you know, and there's a lot of those. There's a lot of things in our history, and I'm really bad with names and places and dates. Uh, you're better with them, but my my point is that there are are these things that have happened in the past, and we can look back on them and that can be our context. Yeah, and we can use them as motivating uh, touchstones to to try to understand what it is that we're facing and how we and how we have effectively combated those things before. Yeah. As well as looking into the history of International Workers Day, uh, I know <laughs> did, oh, I can't remember if I cut out the part about behind the bastards last time, but um Behind the Bastards is one of my favorite podcasts, and mm -hmm. they just did a really good two-parter on um, the history of uh, labor strikes in the coal mines in, like, West Virginia and stuff. Um, mm, yeah. During the First World War, I'm going to say. Um, and I think that was really uh, inspiring and interesting as well to, like, hear about these people who, you know, it was just untenable, and they were willing to die for that because that was what needed to happen and i think that's so um obviously i prefer that nobody dies but like <laughs> it it it, right. it 
it illuminates kind of the um the reality of the struggle that we're facing and the sacrifices that have to be made to accomplish things are not going to be i voted you know right yeah you have you know nurses and grocery store workers and fast food workers and people working at furniture stores who are essential employees and being worked in an environment where they could easily die, you know, and their response has been, you know, they're heroes, but it hasn't been about how can we help these people? How can we, you know, help them not die? How can we care for them? How can we make sure that this doesn't happen again in the future? Um, You know, like exactly the the people in their, um, particularly nurses are, are, you know, they're risking their lives to help others. Um, And I think for one thing that goes beyond profit, that goes beyond the motive of, well, people are getting paid and that's why they're doing these jobs. Um, There is a bit of, you know, we are human and we don't want people to die because we're human, you know? Um, They're every, every human life is valuable by virtue of being a life, you know? Exactly. Um, and additionally, you know, there are lots of people who don't want to be working, but they're going to starve to death if they don't. Yeah. Um, capitalism is not a voluntary system that you can just buy no. in and out of, you know, you work or you die. And that's what it is right now, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And especially for those people at this moment, they're going to work and die maybe, you know? it's Yeah. And if you look at uh, the way that other places are handling this, you know? It's gone in New Zealand, isn't it? Or at least it was. I think so. Um, I think so. I also know um, Vietnam had it pretty under control. Uh, China's doing a much better job at it than we are. Um, you know, it's, it's about, you know, their, their response to it when they quarantine and how they quarantine, but also how they're taking care of people who are quarantined. Um, and people who yeah. aren't quarantined, you know? Yeah, and I don't want to end this on a super dark note. So what I would like to do for the end of the episode is sort of a call to action for everybody. Um, this is something I've been working on uh, <clears throat> within my own communities here in Seattle. I've gotten involved with the Seattle Mutual Aid Pods. Um, and what we talked about on on our organizing call was just like, it's an apolitical movement, by the way. It's got nothing to do with me being a communist. We don't talk about politics in this group at all because this is just about reaching out to each other in this time and like trying to make sure that people are taken care of and are safe and are okay. Um, and the first step to doing that is literally just to talk to your neighbors, you know? Just reach out to them, you know? Because even if they don't need financial help, this is taking a toll on everybody mentally and and there's a lot of uh there's a lot of things that can be gained by just talking to the people around you and making sure that they're okay and it'll help you too <laughs> you know i know i've been going insane <laughs> um yep. and it and it helps just to do like just to reach out and to say here's me i'm struggling are you struggling can we talk about it can we help each other in this time so i'm getting really emotional about this i'm sorry <laughs> mm. um <laughs> But, it's an but that's kind of the call to action. Yeah, that's the that's the call to action I want to end on this week. Um, is please, you know, talk to your neighbors, talk to your friends, talk to your family. Like, 
it doesn't even have to be about money. It doesn't even have to be about grocery shopping for them. Just check in on them, you know? And then if they need help down the line, they're going to be more willing to reach out to you because you have already shown that you care about them. Trying to figure out how to respond in a way that isn't just, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we can call we can call the episode there. I, oh, I don't later. have anything, anything else to say. Um, Me neither. Okay, well, um, <clears throat> thank you all very much for listening to this, our second episode. Woohoo! And thanks to everybody Woo. so much who listened to the first episode um, and who gave us feedback. Um, you can find us on Facebook um, at Lavender Alert or slash Lavender Alert Pod. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, although I don't really use the Instagram. I'll try to <laughs> if people want me to. Uh, we're at Lavender Alert on those two websites. Um, Tumblr? You can find... Is your oh, yeah, Tumblr? we're also on Tumblr. We're also on Tumblr. <laughs> That's um, the one social media site I actually use. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at M-X-D-Y-L-A-N-R-E-I-D. Still in read. Um, <laughs> you want to plug yourself at all, babe? Uh, I can. Um, I, you don't I, have to if you don't want to. I really only have a uh, Tumblr, um, and it's uh, Punky Poodle, P U N K Y P O O D L E, uh, at Tumblr.com. Um, yeah, I am not as good at speaking or putting my thoughts into words as, um, as Dylan is, of course. But, you know, uh, yeah, I, I do have a Tumblr, so I have a web to site. Uh, and I also want to thank our uh, our friend Anne-Marie, uh, mm -hmm. who listened through the first episode for us and gave us, gave us the idea to do a glossary um, during our show notes. Uh, that was super helpful, and she's great. And to our friend Stephen, who... Uh, is going to help who helped us with transcription and uh, might write us an outro music which would be really fun um, nice alright that is uh, that's all I got so cool. thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you all uh, next month hopefully bye <laughs>